Good morning. Take your Bibles. Turn to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in the sixth chapter. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Y'all comfortable? <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. Growing up, I grew up in a Baptist church, and um, my best friends became the pastor's kid, Danny and Stevie Hammond. And uh, I remember the first time I went over to the pastor's house with my, with my friends, his kids, he was, I think, working out in the yard, but I didn't know who he was because he wasn't wearing a suit. Like, I, I just didn't know what the pastor looked like without a suit. So when we started preaching here, occasionally I'd wear a sport coat. Then it was just kind of a button-down shirt. And then I started preaching in jeans. That was a big step for me. And I'm just going to continue the trend towards casual. Are you guys okay with that? So I, I, I hope you're comfortable. Um, it's interesting. I, this is for a point. Paul talks about wardrobe in Ephesians 6. Now, the, the problem that I have contextually opening God's word to this passage is this. It was written 2,000 years ago, and the writer is very different than I am today as your speaker. And um, the audience, it was a very different context than where we are today. So to get you back to where they were 2,000 years ago, we just got to talk for a minute about who Paul was, what his circumstances were, and what was going on in the church that he was writing to. Paul's a prisoner. He's writing from Rome. Bad news is he can't go where he wants. He's living in dire poverty, and um, that's a problem. The good news is his life is safe. Anywhere else he goes in Asia Minor, his life's a risk. He's been planting churches, and because of the gospel, and because of the way people hated the gospel, he doesn't have the freedom to move around. We know from what he writes at the end of 2 Timothy 4 that he's cold, that he's alone, that sometimes he's discouraged. I live an unthreatened life. I, I, I'm free to come and go, to go wherever I want to go. I, I live in a comfortable home. I, I'm nothing like Paul writing this letter. The, the, the church that he's writing to, they're under extreme persecution. They're getting blamed for all the economic problems in the city of Ephesus. There's lies being told about them. They're being told that, that because of confusion about communion and the Lord's Supper that the new Christians, this movement called the way that they're cannibals. Nero's come to power in Rome, and the closer you get to Rome and as the persecution goes, Christians are being fed to lions. They're being crucified on crosses. They're being used as human candles dipped in pitch and lit on fire. That, that's the context of this letter. And Paul's going to use some imagery in this passage about putting on the armor of God that we're at war. And my concern would be if you could take the church in Ephesus that this letter was written to, or if you could take Paul and you could move him 2,000 years forward in time, and if you, they were to attend this service, I think they'd have concerns about us listening to this letter. They'd be like, I don't think they're going to grasp the urgency. I don't think they're going to grasp the intensity. As a church, our, our faith is casual. We don't have a lot of conflict. We don't have the persecution that they endured. And, and what happens in chapter 6 is there's this call to battle. And let's just be honest for a moment. We're not exactly soldiers wearing our fatigues, waiting for the horn to sound to put on our armor to go into battle. That's really not us. We're civilians in our pajamas, sucking our lattes, 
not understanding that we're at war. And what you're going to hear in this passage, we can't miss this. We've got to grasp this. What Paul is going to say to the church in Ephesians, put on the armor of God. I think it would be a more direct, if he were writing to us, he'd say, take off the pajamas. Every inch of this, there's jeans on under this. Don't, 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 don't panic. I, I, I saw some eyes like, no, 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 we, we were prepared, okay? So, so listen, every inch of this universe is contested soil. We're at war whether we realize it or not, and we need to understand our enemy. It's interesting, for the last 32 days, we've been watching the war in Ukraine. You guys paying attention to the war in Ukraine? Uh, don't miss this. This is just a, just a, a tickler at the beginning of the service. There's an announcement coming at the end of the service. We have an opportunity to partner with a group that's doing some things that are, we're pretty excited about in Ukraine. We're going to partner with an organization called Josiah Venture. What I love about Josiah Venture is they're not a relief organization. They've been spreading the gospel in Eastern Europe for 25 years, for a generation. We've known these guys. If you were to ask me, who has made the greatest inroads for the gospel in Eastern Europe in the last 25 years? It's a very quick answer. It's Josiah Venture and what they've done. We're going to introduce you to them at the end of this service, and we're going to have an opportunity to partner with them on some things. But as we've watched the war over the last 32 days... The images have been horrific. Would you agree? And I remember the first week, the first two weeks, like every morning I was getting up, I was turning on the news agencies, I was, I was reading the New York Times, I was looking like, what's going on in the war? But we're, what, 32 days? One month into it? Our news is getting distracted. We're covering Supreme Court stuff and other things going on in our economy. I'm turning on the news, I'm looking at a little bit of war, then I'm flipping over to the sports center. It's shocking, really how quickly those images become routine for us. And, and, and there's a pretty significant difference between turning on the news to see what's going on in the war and living in Ukraine, wouldn't you agree? And, and, and what this passage is doing is it's saying, hey, listen, arm yourselves, put on the armor of God, understand that you have an enemy and just like as Russia has attacked Ukraine, if you've been paying attention, they're attacking on different fronts. They're attacking by land, they're attacking by air, and they're attacking through the sea, through the Black Sea. They've got military positioned in all three of those. It's a multi-dimensional attack on the nation of Ukraine. What we know from Scripture is, as it relates to sin and as it relates to evil, we are under assault, and that assault is also multidimensional. There's actually three aspects to it in knowing our enemy. You don't want to go to battle and not know your enemy. I think Russia's been a little bit surprised in this invasion of Ukraine at the level of resistance of the Ukrainian people. Maybe they're even surprised by the response of the rest of the world, the outcry, the, the sanctions. You don't want to underestimate your enemy. So understand that as it relates to sin and evil in our life, multidimensional attack Three different aspects, the world, our flesh, and the devil. Let me talk about our world for a minute. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world. John 2, 1 John 2, 15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So there is a contrast in conflict between the way our culture views our universe and our reality versus the way the child of God views our reality through the lens of God's Word. 
the culture is always going to be in conflict. There's going to be, there's going to be a battle between our culture and the follower of Jesus Christ. Apart from our culture, we've got our flesh. Mark 7:21 says, it's from within, out of the heart of man, comes every evil thought, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So what that verse is saying is we all have a sin bend. We have a sin nature. And apart from our culture, if you could remove all of the temptations of culture, if you could put us on a desert island by ourselves, the only thing we got is a volleyball friend named Wilson. If that's us, we're going to find a way to continue to sin because sin just doesn't attack from around us. It attacks from inside us. We have a sin bend. And then the third spoke of this multidimensional attack is what Paul addresses directly in Ephesians 6. Look at verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Okay, so here he talks specifically about the devil. Now, the first thing I need to explain to you is the devil, he's a person. That's how I said it last night and I got myself in trouble. When I say I got myself in trouble, my wife said, you got to clarify that. He's not a human, but he is a created being. And what I'm trying to communicate is this. He's not an idea. He's not a construct. He's not an illustration. The devil is real. And some of you are like, yeah, I agree. And some of you are like, don't say that outside these walls. People are going to think you're crazy. Like, like, do you really believe in a devil? Like the horns thing? No, I don't believe in Hollywood's creation of a devil. But I do believe in a devil. I believe that he's real. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you think, what I think, what others think. What's important is what God's Word says. Every New Testament writer mentions the devil. The disciples believed in the devil. Jesus believed in the devil. Fifteen times in Jesus' ministry, he's either in direct conversation with the devil or is teaching us about the devil. The Bible, there's no debate, there's no oh, I wonder if there's a devil. It's very clear throughout the New Testament that the devil actually exists. He's not human. He's an angel. He is celestial. He's a fallen angel. It's interesting, in Luke 10, verse 17, Jesus has sent out 72 of his followers ahead of him to go into the cities two by two, and they're coming back now, and they're giving the report of what happened to Jesus. And it says this in Luke 10, 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Verse 18, and Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay, that's not an illustration or it's not allegorical. That's Jesus remembering what he actually saw. He was there. He saw Lucifer, a created being, a celestial being, fall from heaven. This is described in detail in Revelation chapter 12. It says this, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. That's the, the dragon. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. 
And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So in heaven, mutiny before the garden. There's a battle in heaven. Satan has taken some of the angels to his side and they are battling against the archangel Michael and the forces of the holy God. And the dragon's defeated. He's thrown down. What was... What caused the battle? What was at the heart of the conflict? Tells us in Isaiah 14, verse 13, speaking of the devil, it says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights in the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Okay, you want to know what creates conflict? You want to know what creates battle with God? Saying you're going to be God, not Almighty God. It was pride. Satan wanted to be God himself, and it created war in heaven. He is cast down. Satan is concerned, or, or uh, named as the God of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says, in, this, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 1 John 5.19 says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The idea is this world right now is Satan's territory. He is the ruler of this world. Our text, verse 12 makes it very, very clear that he is organized. It says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These different designations, rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces of evil, indicates that they are a vast organized army. That word rulers, it's described as or translated principalities in the King James Version, it's talking about generals that oversee regions, states, cities. And underneath generals are colonels, are lieutenants, are sergeants, are enlisted demons. This is an organized army. It's interesting. It says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word schemes in the Greek is uh, methodias. It's where we get our word method. So the idea is there's an army. It is strong. It is organized. It is powerful. It is on the attack. And you better understand its methods. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Well, well, what is the strategy of Satan? What is the strategy of this spiritual battle that surrounds us? Well, it's really clear. Scripture addresses it over and over. Satan lies. He's a liar. John 8, 44 says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Speaking of Satan, or the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Satan's strategy, he doesn't have that many weapons. He doesn't hold that many cards. He just keeps playing them over and over again. He's going to lie. But what does he lie about? Well, he lies about God, about who he is, about what he said, 
about whether he's really for us, if his character can be trusted. If you were to go back to Genesis 3, the initial fall, a tree is planted in the garden. Adam and Eve are told, eat of anything, just don't eat of that one. And Satan comes in Genesis 3, 1, comes to tempt Adam and Eve. And what's the first thing that he says? Did God really say that you can't eat of that tree? That's Genesis 3, 1. And then Eve says, yeah, that's exactly what he said. And look at how he responds in verse 4 of Genesis 3. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of, the, uh, uh, eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good for e- and evil. So, so here's what Satan's saying. He's telling lies about God. He says he's a, he's a taker. He's not a giver. Th- that, that rule is not there for your protection. God's trying to protect himself. He, he doesn't want you to become like him. So he's restricting you. He's putting limitations on you that are actually to your detriment. He's lying about the character of God. Satan's always a liar. He lies about God. He lies about us. This is why in Ephesians 1, Paul starts this letter by saying, you are in Christ. That's an identity statement. If you're a follower of Christ, you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, well, that means you were chosen. You were adopted. You were forgiven. You were sealed. You have an inheritance. You're a child of the king whole chapter. Here's your identity in Christ. Why? He knows that Satan is going to try to lie about your identity. How do we know this? Well, if you were to look at Matthew chapter 4, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist in the wilderness. And after he comes out of the water, we read that God speaks from heaven and says, this is your, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In Matthew 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. Look at how Satan attacks Jesus. He says in Matthew 4, 3, and the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. So in both of the first two temptations, it starts this way. If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, He's trying to get Jesus to question who he is. How dumb is that? Like like the previous chapter, God Almighty has spoken from heaven. You are my son. I am well pleased. Next chapter, if you're the son of God, like do you think Jesus is dumb enough to fall for that? I don't. But I think we are. He's going to lie. He's going to say, you're not one of mine. You're not one of my kids. Satan's going to look at you and go, you know what? God doesn't love you. He loves some future version of you when you get your stuff together. Are you really saved? Satan is going to plant those lies. He's a liar. He lies about God. He lies about us. Here's the third thing. He lies about about cause and effect. I read from Revelation 12. In that passage, Satan is referred to as the deceiver. In Galatians 6, 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. If you plant corn, you reap corn. Just kind of how farming works. And what Satan is going to say in the summer between planting and harvesting, he's going to say, hey, nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to get hurt. You're going to get away with it. 
What you plant, you're never going to harvest. He lies about cause and effect. He tempts us by saying we won't reap what we plant. Satan's goal is to discourage, to disable, and to destroy. He has no conscience, no compassion, no remorse, and no morals. So how do we respond to this attack? Well, hopefully you see this in the text. We need to know our objective. If we're at war, we need to know what we're called to do. Look what it says in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done it all to stand firm. Stand therefore. Are you guys seeing like a repeated theme? Is Paul like pounding the same idea. What is he calling us to do? To stand. I'll say that without my voice cracking. To stand, okay? Like, like he's saying, hey, you've got to stand over and over. Withstand, stand. That's what we're called to do. Our objective is to stand firm. And before I get too far away from describing the devil, I need to give you one more point as it relates to Satan and the devil. You understand that he's a defeated enemy. God has him on a leash. He can only do what God allows. And though he's the ruler of this world, there is a day soon approaching where that rule and God's patience will come to an end. It's interesting. Before Christ returns the second time, Antichrist is on the scene. Antichrist is empowered by Satan. And there's one last conflict. Let me show you how it resolves. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 says, speaking of Antichrist, and the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonder. So, so the Antichrist is empowered by Satan. All of Satan's power is entrusted to him. And then what happens is at the end of the day, Christ returns and, and they have some like big Marvel comic, 25 minute battle. Is that what you see in the text? No, he shows up. He speaks the word and it's done. He says, it is finished, and it is finished. The battle is won when he shows up. Okay? In John 12, 22, Jesus is writing or speaking to the disciples, and he's talking about what's going to happen at the cross. And in that passage, he says, the world or the ruler of this world has been cast down. That's what's accomplished at the cross says this in Colossians 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Those are incredible verses because it says all of the legal demands, the fact that you can't pay for your sin, Jesus bore that. He took our place on the cross and he satisfied God's holiness. Look what it says next, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. At the cross, Jesus took the organized structure and army of Satan and he said, you are defeated. He put them to open shame. The battle's won. We're just living in those weird skirmishes after the outcome's already been decided. And that has huge implications for us. It says in 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and you've overcome them for he who is in you is greater 
than he who is in the world. Second or 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And you'll never be put in a position because God is faithful that you'll be tempted beyond your ability. There's always a way to escape the temptation. James 4, 7 says, submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let me backwards interpret this. Satan will flee from you. That's how we stand firm. How do you get Satan to flee from you? Well, you resist the devil. How do you resist the devil? You submit. Oh, man, there's that word again. You guys won't get off that submit word. Do you know why? Because as a follower of Jesus, your call is to submission. It's a life of submission. And he's saying that choice of submitting your will to God, that's how you resist the devil. And when you do it, he doesn't have power. C.S. Lewis gave this warning concerning the devil. He said, we make two errors, equal errors. One is to not give him any credit or not give him any attention. The other is to give him too much. God wants to be fully known by his children. Come to me, come to me, fully known. That's the relationship that he desires. Satan likes to live in the shadows. He likes to be ignored. He likes to operate under the radar. That's a danger. The other danger is to not realize that he's already defeated by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and we have full power because greater is he that is in us than he is in the world. So if we're called to stand firm, how do we do that? What keeps us strong? Paul's real detailed on this. He describes the armor of God. He takes it through six different pieces. We're going to look at those quickly, but here's what I want to point out. Before every piece of armor, it's always put on, take up, put on, take up, put on. There's an action involved on our part. This isn't just stand there and let God clothe you. It, it, it's a call to arms. It's a call to action. Put on the armor. Take off the pajamas. It, it involves something on our side. Look at verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Okay, so the first piece of armor that we have is the, of truth or the, the belt of truth, okay? Hey, a quick question. What, what, what happens if you forget to wear your belt? I, I didn't hear. What was that? Okay, yeah, some of you are like, absolutely nothing. That's what the guy said at the nine o'clock service. What happens if you forget a belt? He goes, absolutely nothing. Well, he was buff. He had <laughs> hips that were wider than his waist. His pants stay up. Good for him. Us pear-shaped people, Okay. <laughs> Very, very important that we wear a belt because the worst thing that can happen to you is you get into the middle of a battle and your pants are around your ankles. It's a bad plan. It's embarrassing. So in this case, he starts with this idea of the belt of truth. Now, okay, are, are, is he talking your truth or my truth? Which truth? Culture's truth, the world's truth. Like, what's he referring to when he talks about the belt of truth? I would argue that he's talking about a truth that stands the test of time, that's reliable, like Oprah or Dr. Phil. Where do you go when you need truth that's reliable? You go to God's Word. Hopefully you have fellow soldiers in your life that will tell you the things you need to say. See, so you can find that friend anywhere. 
who will tell you, well, do whatever makes you feel good. I just think the most important thing is that you're happy. Do in the minute, which will cause pain in the long run. Like you can find that guy. He's at the end of every bar. Finding somebody that will give you truth, that will hold your pants up. That guy's a little more rare. The belt of truth, God's word. Don't go into battle without knowing God's word. Don't go into battle without knowing Jesus. Don't go into battle without some fellow soldiers in your life who will speak truth even when you don't want to hear it. Having fastened the belt of truth, look what's next. Verse 14, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Why, why is a breastplate important? Well, it protects like, like your heart, some vital organs there. 2008, I had the privilege to, to fly into Baghdad. And as you fly into Baghdad, it's a little bit of a weird thing in that you can't fly low over enemy territory. So you come in over the Baghdad airport high and then you do a corkscrew landing, you pull out of it and you land. If you've never done one of those, don't do it. Um, they should warn you about that. That should be in the little briefing with the seatbelt and the oxygen thing. No warning. So I'm already rattled when I land. And then you get off the plane and they say, we're going to take you from here to the green zone in an armored Humvee. And they hand you a bulletproof vest. They give you a helmet. They hand you a machine gun, an AR something. And they're like, do you know how to operate this? And they just kind of looked at me and assumed that I didn't. So they, they gave me an explanation like of this. And they're like, this is the most dangerous road in the world. If you hit an explosive, don't leave your vehicle. Don't get taken captive. You'd rather die. Fight to the death. Stay with your vehicle. I'm like, awesome. <laughs> get to the green zone next morning. We're going, right, going back out into Baghdad proper. We're going to leave the green zone. Back in the helmet, back in the bulletproof vest. And a Marine comes up to me, looks at me with disgust, hits me in the chest and says, don't move. I didn't move. Like, I, I, I wasn't going to move. I didn't move a bit. He came back in a minute or two. And it was interesting. He took my vest, pulled up some Velcro, slid two big heavy metal plates in the vest and then re-Velcroed it. I was like, I probably should have had those for the ride last night, right? Like, he's like, how, why didn't you have your, I, like, I thought it was Kevlar or something. Like, I didn't know. I'd never worn a bulletproof vest before. I was, I was, like, the bulletproof part wasn't there. Not an awesome idea if you're going into battle in a bulletproof vest that isn't bulletproof. The breastplate of righteousness is to protect your heart. Now, it's funny, commentaries and theologians, they argue, is that, what righteousness? Is that our good works? Is that God's good works? I'm just going to solve it, both. There's two types of righteousness that the Bible talks about. The first is imputed righteousness. That's what we get at the cross. When we acknowledge Jesus and Savior and repent of our sin, righteousness is imputed to us. We get Christ's righteousness. He takes our sin and God's wrath. It's a pretty good deal. That's imputed righteousness. Imparted righteousness is the fact that once saved, we have the Holy Spirit, and now we have the ability to choose to follow and obey God. What keeps our heart protected? Both. The choice to do righteousness and understanding that we are covered. When God sees us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. What an incredible thing that needs to protect our hearts. Verse 15, has shoes for your feet, having put on 
the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves, that God forgives, that his spirit indwells in us, that we have restored relationship with the creator of the universe, that we have peace with God. Now, if I were going to get into a shoving match, uh, say with, with Pastor Ben, he's, he's bigger than me. I'm going to assume that most of you would believe that he's going to win, right? But how about if we did our shoving match in the shallow end of a pool and I had those aqua sticky shoes on and he was barefooted in a pool? I can push that guy all over the place. Boom, I'll push him right into the deep end because I have traction. The importance of shoes in battle is that we have traction. And what gives us traction is the constant reminder that we're no more longer enemies. We know what side we're on. We're at peace with God. Verse 16, the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. We always have this definition at our church of faith. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel, because God promises a good result. Believing the word of God and acting upon it. Faith is not just what we believe, but it's what drives our activity. And if that is the shield against Satan's darts, we need to understand that he's going to attack what we believe and what we're willing to do. And here's the truth. Faith protects us. Understanding the gospel not just to the point that we understand it in our heads, but it drives our activities. We're submitting our will back to that point again. It's our shield. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. Satan loves to play mind games. He loves to attack our minds with doubt. Is God good? Can the Bible be trusted? Are his promises going to be kept? Am I really saved? Am I really forgiven? Am I really a child of the king? Is God really going to redeem this thing? Who's, who's going to prevail? Is it going to be God or... Doubt. The helmet protects us from the doubt that Satan wants to plant. The truth of salvation, the, the truth of our salvation protects our mind. Every week when you come to harvest, you should critique our preaching on whether it contains the story of the gospel that we need a Savior, that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus took God's wrath and our sin in our place. That should be in every message because we need it all the time. It is our helmet of protection. And then you can leave here and never think about your salvation again the rest of the week. But once a week, if we remind you, that's good enough, right? But like how often do you think you have to remind yourself of salvation? How often? Every day? Well, maybe you have to remind yourself, Dale, every day, but I'm a pastor. So like every third day you think I'm good? Like what do you think? every day, sometimes multiple times a day, when I'm discouraged, when I'm attacked, when I'm tempted, hey, I'm on God's side of this thing. He's given me the power to overcome temptation. He loves me. I'm a child of the king. The helmet of salvation, it protects our head. And then finally, verse 17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of the Spirit is an interesting weapon because it disarms all three dimensions of evil's attack. First of all, as it relates to the world, 
Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our minds? We do it by placing them in God's word, letting it become something that we know, becoming more and more familiar with Jesus. Well, I don't know where to start. Read a gospel. Learn about Jesus. Renew your mind. It protects us against our flesh. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It protects against the flesh. Like, like I got to tell you, I'm able to fool myself. I don't even need Satan's help. And there's sometimes I start to think one way and it's bad thinking and, and, and I open up God's Word and it, it corrects, it redirects, it has the ability to reveal the intentions of my heart. And as it relates to Satan, just interesting, if you took the time to read Matthew 4 when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, every time he said, are you the Son of God, are you the Son of God, are you the Son of God, same defense. Jesus quoted God's Word, he quoted God's Word, he quoted God's Word. So, some of you were here, you would remember, when, when we got this building and had the opportunity to plant this campus, we ripped out all the old um, pews, okay? And then we ripped out all the carpet. And we were going to remodel this place. Do you guys remember what we did after we demoed it, before we renovated? Do you guys remember what we did here? Scripture. Where did we write the Scripture? Like, all over the place. This stage is covered with Scripture. Small groups coming in, writing Scripture. High school kids coming in, writing Scripture. Why would we do that? Y'all don't even know it's here. Like, we covered it with carpet. What's the point? We wanted to stand on God's Word. It, it meant something to us. Protect your turf. Protect your territory. Is God's Word prevalent in your home? Like, like, like are verses hanging out all over the place? Are they on your fridge? Are they on your counter? Are they in your artwork? God's word, it's our sword. It's interesting. We're going to close. And do you know how I know we're going to close? Because that guy's playing back there, okay? <laughs> First John 3, 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. First Peter 4, verse 12. Brother, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Ephesians 6.18, to that end, keep alert. Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord. Ephesians 6, stand firm. You're in a battle. Don't be surprised. Shed the pajamas. Put on the armor. We're in a struggle. And Jesus is conqueror. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for the uh, wake-up call. Father, give us the strength to stand firm. It's in your name we pray. Amen.